Our text for this morning is the Word of God as we found it in, as we read it in Exodus 8, chapter, uh, verses 16 to 32. We're taking together then the third and fourth plagues. Pharaoh has, of course, in the uh, meetings before this with Moses and Aaron, been showing his folly. He had refused to heed the sign of the rod of Aaron, which was changed to a serpent and devoured the rods of Pharaoh's servants. He had hardened his heart against the changing of the waters of Egypt to blood and would not obey the commandment of the Lord to let his people go. He had also refused to hear the word of God through Moses and Aaron with regard to the second plague, the plague of the frogs. Even though he had had to humble himself in that case and had had to ask Moses and Aaron to entreat the Lord for him, he still, after the Lord had taken the plague away, hardened his heart against that word of God. And so in these two new plagues which God sends on Pharaoh, the plague of lice and the plague of flies, God displays his power to Pharaoh in new ways. There are two things, I think, which stand out in these two plagues. The first is that in the third plague, the plague of lice, the magicians were unable to duplicate the plague. And that seems to be the case from now on. God permitted the Egyptians, the Egyptian magicians, prior to this, to duplicate the signs that he had been giving to Pharaoh. But at this point, he puts an end to it. And then in the fourth plague, God does another new thing. He separates between his people and the people of Egypt. And the only ones who suffer in the fourth plague are the Egyptians, not his own people. So God displays his power to Pharaoh in new ways then, in these two plagues. In order to uh, make manifest the exceeding hardness of Pharaoh's heart. We look at the passage under the theme, God sent lice and flies into the land of Egypt, and we look first at the plague of lice and then at the plague of flies. Now there are a number of things that we want to notice about the plague of lice. In the first place, the plague was not announced. Notice that. The account is very brief, only four verses in the text, and there's no meeting of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh before the plague comes. There had been meetings before the first two plagues. There's a meeting before the fourth plague. There's no meeting before the third plague. The plague simply comes. Pharaoh doesn't know it's coming. He doesn't know the nature of the plague. Nothing's been told him about the plague. The Lord simply comes to Moses and, and to Aaron, and he says, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land of Egypt. God is working in a in somewhat different way this time with Pharaoh. So that's the first thing. It's not an announced plague. 
Pharaoh and his men still know that the plague is from the Lord. There's no doubt in their minds. You can see that in verse 18. The magicians tried again to duplicate the plague. They knew who had sent the plague, and they tried again to duplicate the plague. But they were unable this time to do so and had to say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So that's first. The plague comes unannounced. In the second place, notice that God commands Aaron this time to strike the dust of the land with his rod. I think that's also important. Before this, Aaron struck the river and stretched out his rod over the waters of Egypt. And the plague was a plague on the waters. In the second plague, Aaron again stretched out his rod over the waters of Egypt, and the waters brought forth frogs. So the first plague was on the waters. The second plague began in the waters and affected the land. Now the plague comes from the land itself. Aaron strikes the dust of the land and it becomes lice. God is showing then his sovereignty over all the different parts of the land of Egypt. He's master of the river. He's master of the land. He's master of both together so that he can do whatever he pleases in the land of Egypt. And there is no one in all the land of Egypt who can stand against him. We want also to talk about that word lice here. If you look at some of the other modern translations of this passage, you will find that most of them translate gnats. And it's not really known what this word means. Whether it was lice or gnats, some think it was mosquitoes, some think it was beetles. It's not really known what that word means. But pretty much, I think, we may say there, was agree- there is agreement that this was some kind of small insect. And I think that's important also. We noticed last time when we talked about the plague of frogs that God does not need great armies in order to defeat Pharaoh. And again, he's showing that same thing. He does not need great armies of men. He uses tiny little insects this time to defeat Pharaoh. And we see then in this even, I think we may say, God laughing at Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he can stand against God himself. All God has to do is strike the dust of the land and turn it into lice, and Pharaoh will submit. Pharaoh can't stand against the smallest of God's creatures. But it's also a warning to Pharaoh. Pharaoh should be thinking at this point in this plague, if the Lord can do this to me, what if he really begins to exert himself? What if he begins to use some of his greater creatures against me? What if he manifests his power in some greater way against me? He should be afraid of what this God of Israel can do. And notice also, finally, that the text says, all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Undoubtedly, that's hyperbole. An exaggeration, but an exaggeration that's meant to emphasize the extent and severity of this plague. This was clearly, again, no ordinary thing, with not having any kind of natural explanation. This was very, very bad. So bad that Pharaoh and his servants could not tolerate it. It was too much for them. 
Though again, I think we may say that it was more of a nuisance plague than a destructive plague. We don't read of any death. We don't read of any, um, any disease. We don't read of any, anything that happened as a result of this plague. It was probably just more of a nuisance kind of plague, again, that God sent. The more destructive plagues are still to come. Let's look also at the response of Pharaoh and his magicians. First of all, we find that the magicians tried and failed to duplicate the plague. Verse 18. And notice how this is stated. I think it's stated in this way in order to strike us very uh, hard with the work of God in this case. It's said in verse 18, Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lights. And if you stop there, you would say, they did just what they had done before. They worked with their enchantments to bring forth lights. Just as they had worked with their enchantments to bring forth frogs, and just as they had worked with their enchantments to change water to blood, so they worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice. It makes it sound as if they were successful. And then it says, and they could not. So it's meant to strike us very hard and to amaze us. The Lord is at work here in this uh, inability of the magicians to do what they want to do. The Lord is preventing them from accomplishing their purpose. The Lord is preventing them from demonstrating to Pharaoh that this is not necessarily a plague from the God of Israel, or that if it is a plague from the God of Israel, still they can do the same thing. The Lord is taking away from Pharaoh another one of his excuses for not obeying the voice of the Lord. Before he could say, my magicians can do the same, now he cannot say it anymore. He does not have that excuse anymore for his disobedience. But we should also recognize that this whole idea that the magicians duplicate the plagues of the Lord has to be growing old by this point. What use is it? for them to be able to duplicate the plagues. To stop the plagues, that would be something. But to duplicate the plagues, they make, at best, they make things worse. There's nothing they're doing to help Pharaoh. Nothing they're doing really does anything to help Pharaoh against God and against Moses and Aaron. But notice, too, how the magicians, what the magicians say to Pharaoh here. This is the finger of God. I think that's very interesting in two ways. First of all, they speak of the finger of God. That's a somewhat unusual expression in the scriptures. It occurs only two or three other times. And I want to look at those other times that it occurs. First of all, in Exodus 31, verse 18. Exodus 31, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, 
He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Written with the finger of God. Then in Psalm 8, verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then one other passage which doesn't speak of the finger of God, but which does make reference to fingers, Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. I think if you take all those passages together, what you see here is that this reference to fingers emphasizes skill. It takes fine skill to write on a tablet of stone with one's finger. The uh, fashioning of the heavens by the finger of God emphasizes his great skill in doing it and the artistry, if you will, of his work. And when David says, the Lord trains my fingers for war, he means that the Lord is preparing him in every possible way and making him very dexterous in his wielding of the weapons which the Lord has given to him. So the emphasis is on skill, and the magicians are really saying here, we have to acknowledge that the skill of this God exceeds our skill. This is the finger of God. But notice at the same time that they refer to the God of Israel, if they're talking about him at all, as God, not as Yahweh. The Lord has been saying to Moses and Aaron and through them to Pharaoh, I will make myself known as Yahweh. And the Egyptians don't use that name. They do not want yet to acknowledge him as Yahweh. This, they say, is the finger of God. And maybe they even mean this is the finger of some God whom we do not know, whose power is greater than ours. So I think it's significant that they do not use the name Yahweh, especially in light of the fact that the Lord has been revealing himself as Yahweh to them. And finally, we find that Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Now, again, I think it's good for us to review what the scriptures have said about Pharaoh's hardness of heart before this, because that's mentioned in different connections in the prior um, passages. For example, when it's uh, said that he hardened his heart in connection with the serpents, then uh, Pharaoh, Aaron's rod had been changed to a serpent and had devoured the rods of his magicians. And we read, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart then against a specific act of God which showed God's superiority to himself and his magicians. But when he hardened his heart against the plague of the water turning to blood, he did it 
because the magicians duplicated that plague. That was in response then to what his magicians were able to do. And it was that that persuaded him that he did not need to let the people of Israel go. And when he hardened his heart in connection with the plague of frogs, it was in connection with the taking away of the the frogs. So he's responding in this hardness of heart to different aspects of God's work and different manifestations of God's power. And now in this connection it said, the magician said to him, this is the finger of God, and then Pharaoh's heart grows hard. The magicians can't do it. They say to him, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh says, I won't let the people go. He hardens his heart then specifically against this manifestation that this is indeed the power of God. Probably, the plague of lice passed away naturally. We do not read anyway that God intervened to bring an end to that plague. But let's turn then to the plague of flies. Now this plague was announced. That's the first thing that we should notice about it. The Lord said to Moses, verse 20, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. So the Lord sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh again to announce this plague. There are a number of things that we should notice about that. First of all, they meet him again at the river, at least probably at the river, though the river's not specifically mentioned. The language here uh, is similar to that found in Exodus 7, verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. And you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. So perhaps they met him before he came to the river's bank. That's another possible way to look at this. But anyway, it's similar to that instance. In the second place, this time the Lord says to Moses, rise early in the morning. So he's speaking to him the day before. This And he's telling Moses, do this the next day, do it early the next day, and go. In the third place, he says, stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And that word stand is important because it suggests confrontation. It almost suggests, and it may well be the case, that what God meant to... uh, to say to Moses was here, I want you to stand in Pharaoh's way so that he can't get around you. I want you to confront him in such a way that he has to hear you. And then I want you to speak my word to him. Moses and Aaron, in other words, must not be afraid of Pharaoh who thinks himself a god and who thinks that he has the power of life and of death. God will protect Moses and Aaron and they can stand boldly in Pharaoh's way and bring the word of God to him as we should do also in all our witnessing. 
The second thing we want to notice about this announcement is that God gives to Moses and to Aaron the words they are to say. And I think we may identify four different things about those words that they are to say. First, they are to repeat the command of God. This is what God has been saying to Pharaoh all along, let my people go. This is the only thing Pharaoh has to do in order to avoid the plague coming on him. If he will simply let the people go three days journey into the wilderness to worship their God, the plague will not come. Obey this command, the plagues, the word of God says, and there will be no plague. The second thing about the word of God to him is that there is again a threat or else If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and so on. Now, if you look at the text a minute, you'll see that the flies is in italics. And so the the Hebrew says only, I will send swarms. And again, it's not entirely clear what these swarms were. There are some who think that it was all kinds of different insects that the Lord sent. But flies is, is the translation that most accept. So we'll go along with that. He will send flies, swarms of flies. And he will send these flies on Pharaoh, on his servants, that is on those immediate high-level people who serve Pharaoh directly, like the magicians and other uh, high-level people, and on his people, that is on all the people of Egypt. So everybody in the, uh, every Egyptian in the land of Egypt is going to be affected. And he will send the flies into their houses and into the ground or on the ground on which they stand. So they're going to be everywhere. Again, very clearly a miraculous sign. Just millions upon millions upon millions of flies everywhere in the land of Egypt, on Pharaoh and his servants and all his people, no one escapes. And in the third place, God says, not this time on Israel, not in the land of Goshen. In that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. Well, that too is important. This is the first time that the Lord has set apart his people. It seems, though it's not mentioned specifically, that all the the two plagues that, or the three plagues rather, that had preceded this plague came on Israel as well. From here on, there seems to be division between Israel and Egypt. But those first three plagues came also on Israel. They were affected by the water being changed to blood. They were affected by the frogs and they were affected by the lice. And if we think about it, that shouldn't surprise us, people of God. This is God's usual way of working. When he brings his judgments on the earth, his people are caught up very often in these judgments. God does not set his people apart in some safe place and protect them from his judgments and the effects of his judgments on the world. 
when he sends flood and fire and drought and hurricanes and all kinds of natural disasters, when he sends war and rumors of war and all these other judgments that he talks about in all the rest of the scriptures, his people suffer in those judgments right along with the rest of the world. Now, we have to understand that. We have to uh, see that that's God's usual way of working, that his people suffer under these judgments that he sends on the world. But we also have to take a biblical perspective on those judgments that we suffer. And the biblical perspective is what's given to us in Revelation chapter 7. That's why I chose to read that this morning. Revelation chapter 7. What is it said there in in Revelation 7? As you see the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding the four winds of heaven. And these winds are going to blow and they're going to bring harm to the earth. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels, verse 2, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the point of that chapter is that though these judgments come on the people of God as well as on the world, nevertheless the people of God have this assurance from God himself that he will preserve them through these judgments. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. In all his dealings, therefore, with the world in this matter of judgments, God does make a real distinction between his people and the world. And he says, they will suffer, yes, along with the rest of the world, but my wrath for them will not be a destroying wrath. My judgments will not destroy them as they destroy the rest of the world. He gave this assurance to Abraham also when Abraham pleaded for Lot when, after God told him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And that's where we pin our hopes, not on escaping from judgment altogether. We need that too for our own sanctification. But on the promise of the Lord that he will bring us through and will not suffer us to be destroyed with the rest of the world. Notice what Moses himself says later in Exodus. Exodus chapter 33, verse 16. Exodus 33, verse 16. We begin to read at verse 15. He said to him, that is, Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. What distinguishes the people of God from all the rest of the people of the world? God is among them. And God is among them according to his grace to preserve them and to work through his judgments, not for their destruction, but for their good. 
Notice too the purpose of this distinction between the Egyptians and Israel as we find it in the text. It's in verse uh, 22. He says to Moses in that day, or he says to Pharaoh through Moses, in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. He has said before, you will know that I am the Lord. He said before, in the connection with the second plague, that you may know that there is no one like me, the Lord. Now he says that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. The Lord is revealing to Pharaoh then different aspects of his power and his work. He's teaching Pharaoh, overall, in a general way, I am the Lord. But he shows Pharaoh, there's no one like me. He shows Pharaoh now, I am the Lord in the midst of your land. I am such a Lord in the midst of your land that I can draw lines in your land. Build, as it were, walls in your land behind which my people will find safety and through which you cannot pass. I will bring my judgments only on you and your people. And finally, the Lord says to him, this is going to happen tomorrow. He gives Pharaoh space to change his mind, to repent, if you will, though Pharaoh does not. In the second place, we should look at the fulfillment of this word of God, as it's recorded for us in verse 24. Two things we want to notice about that. First of all, there's no mention here that this plague came by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God does not say to Moses and Aaron, strike the earth with your rod or anything like that. He just brings the plague. He apparently intervened directly in this plague to bring it without the instrumentality of Moses and Aaron. And secondly, notice that it says there in verse 24 that the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. You need to ask what that means. And I think we get some help in that by turning to Psalm 78, verse 45. Psalm 78, verse 45. The first part of that verse talks about this plague of flies. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them. Apparently, these were biting flies. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them. And then the second part of the verse talks about the plague of frogs and frogs, which destroyed them. And that word destroyed there is the same word that we have here in the fourth plague, when it says the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. So Psalm 78, verse 45, might well be translated, and frogs which corrupted them. And I think that relates these two plagues then. The frogs died and brought corruption into the land. The land stank. Probably something similar happened here. The land was corrupted because 
of the millions upon millions upon millions of carcasses of flies in the land. And then finally, let's look at Pharaoh's response again. Pharaoh promises, verse 25, to let the people go. Go sacrifice to your God. But he tries to negotiate in the land. You say you have to go three days journey into the wilderness. I say, no, you may go sacrifice, but you have to do it within the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's negotiating or trying to negotiate from a position of weakness, of course. He has been defeated by the Lord. He's already been coming to Moses and Aaron and trying to get freedom, relief from this plague which the Lord has sent. And Moses and Aaron are negotiating, if we may call it that, from a position of strength. But Pharaoh was trying to preserve his pride. Moses and Aaron made no concessions to him. They, didn't, they might not do that. They were the servants of the Lord, and it was the Lord's commandment they had brought to Pharaoh. It was not for them, therefore, to say, well, we can reduce what the Lord requires of us, and we can say this is satisfactory. The Lord said we must go three days' journey into the wilderness, and that's the end of the matter. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness. We may not do less than what the Lord has commanded us to do. So they may not concede what Pharaoh asks or demands. But they need not also, as we've already noticed. Pharaoh's the one who's defeated. The only thing that he can do is surrender unconditionally. And finally, notice that Moses gives to Pharaoh a very sound reason why they should not do this as well. Verse 26, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? Now that's partly a reference to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46 Verse 34, where, Pharaoh, where Joseph says to his brothers, You shall say to Pharaoh, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So they, the Israelites were already in their occupation an abomination to the Egyptians, and now it seems, this is, goes a little further, they're going to take their animals, their sheep and their other livestock, and they're going to sacrifice to them, and this is going to make even more of an offense to the Egyptians. And Moses says the Egyptians might well stone us if we do this in the land. So we can't do it here. There is no concord between Christ and Belial. The world hates God. The world hates Christ. The world hates God's people. The world hates the worship of God in the world. And the world is always trying to suppress and destroy that worship. God commands us to worship in the midst of the world. He commands us to worship publicly in the midst of the world in order that the world may hear the witness of his word. But that does not mean that the world loves to hear that word of God. 
There is no uh, yoking of believer and unbeliever in this world. And so Pharaoh has to give in. Moses and Aaron will make no concessions. And he has to surrender completely. He says in verse 28, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. You may leave the land. Only you shall not go very far away. And that is probably designed again to preserve his pride. But what kind of restriction is it? Moses and Aaron can take it to me. We may travel the three days journey that's demanded of us. And so Pharaoh asks that they intercede for him and Moses agrees to do it. They've made no concessions to him. Moses promises Pharaoh, therefore, that he will entreat the Lord that the plague may be taken away. But he also, and this too is a very bold thing, he also warns Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people of Israel go to sacrifice to the Lord. Don't deal with us deceitfully again as you have been doing. Now that word deal deceitfully is an interesting word because it carries with it the connotation of mockery as well. It's the word that's used, for example, of Elijah's mockery of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember how he taunted them with the incapacity of their God to send fire from heaven to burn up their sacrifices. That's the word that's used. He mocked them. And this is the same word that Delilah used with Samson when she said to Samson, you've mocked me these three times. You've dealt deceitfully with me, yes, but you've also, in dealing deceitfully with me, mocked me. That is, you've taken me lightly. And this is what Pharaoh has been doing with Moses and Aaron. He's been taking them lightly. He's been dealing deceitfully. He's not been taking seriously the power of God in them. He's really been mocking the Lord in what he has been doing. Don't mock any longer, Moses is saying to him. Don't mock by your deceitful dealings. It's dangerous to you. You must obey the command of the Lord. And so Moses went then and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord killed all the flies in one day, destroyed them all, relieved the land of Egypt of that plague in one day. Again, it's clear that this is a miraculous plague. Two things by way of conclusion, people of God. First, Matthew Henry says about this plague, reigning lusts, that is lusts that reign in our hearts, break through the strongest bonds. That is, reigning lusts tend to throw off all restraints. And they make men impudently presumptuous and scandalously perfidious. Reigning lusts break through the strongest bonds and make men impudently presumptuous and scandalously perfidious. 
Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. It will reign to your ruin. But in the second place, people of God, we need especially to call attention to the grace of God. He sets apart his people from this time on. He says, no more will they suffer under the judgments which I bring upon Pharaoh and his people. They will be preserved. A people not worthy of blessing. We see that very clearly in future history. A people not worthy of blessing, but a people nevertheless that receives the grace of God in abundance. May God bless the proclamation of his word.